case. Hope Not Hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backwards thinking, virtue, sick, virtue signaling, fake news crazy. Welcome back to the Hope Not Hate podcast. Um, for those of you who have been listening for a long time, um, we've been doing a series of interviews with academics, scholars around the world that look at various aspects that affect our work at Hope Not Hate, from racism, fascism, the far right, etc. And we've got a new one this week, which we're really excited about. Um, we've got the co-authors of a new book that's out on Verso called Reactionary Democracy, How Racism and the Populist Far Right Became Mainstream. And joining me to talk about it are the two authors, which is Aurelian Mondon, who's senior lecturer at the University of Bath, and Aaron Winter, who's a criminologist at the University of East London. Hello, thanks for joining us. Hey. Hi, thanks. Um, so, really interesting book. I mean, I've seen lots of people talking on it about Twitter. I'm sure most of our supporters and the people that listen to this podcast have either got a copy or have certainly seen a copy of it somewhere. Um, but I want to start very, very simply, and either of you can jump in, whoever you prefer, on, it's called Reactionary Democracy. Um, could you just tell us what is reactionary democracy? How are you defining that in this book? Well, we, uh, we decided to call it reactionary democracy because we've realized that um, there's been this kind of mistake that's been made in a lot of public discourse, which tended to see democracy versus the far right. And what we're trying to argue is that things are far more complicated than that. Uh, and, and, and we delve uh, more in, in the book on this when we talk about liberalism in particular. And so what we try to show is really that you can have a reactionary concept of democracy. You can have a, like what we call reactionary democracy is the use of democratic tropes uh, to kind of push reactionary agendas. Uh, so there are things that I'm sure we're going to talk about uh, a lot more uh, during the podcast, uh, things like the left behind and the way the left behind of the working class have been used to kind of push some very reactionary agendas, uh, such as racism, sexism, and all these kind of things. And so what we try to show really is that we need to, democracy, is, it's not just about voting, and it's not just because you are voting that you have democracy and that it will be progressive and that things will be fine. Uh, I think we need to make it progressive ourselves, uh, otherwise we, we have we have what we have right now. We have Donald Trump, we have Bolsonaro, we have uh, the rise of a, of a Rassemblement National in France, we have Brexit, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So what we're trying to say is that to, to, we need to really think carefully about what democracy means. Um, being in what, or thinking that we are in democratic state is not enough. We need, we need to do a lot more than that if we want to have a fair and equal society. Yeah, I mean, so is reactionary democracy the same as when sometimes you read, we read about, you know, Hungary, Victor Orban, and people say that's an illiberal democracy versus we live in a liberal democracy. Is that, is that a similar sort of thing or are we actually talk about a different phenomenon here? I, I think it's, um, in some ways we're talking about it where we're referring to democratic sort of elections or regimes that espouse reactionary ideas or illiberal ideas. And I, I hesitate to use that term also because we, we have a particular conception of liberal, liberal racism in relation to liberal racism. But I think, I think we're talking about it and I think Aurelian sort of covered most of this, but it's not just a type of democracy, but it's the, it's the on one hand, on the back of, and I guess this is gonna get into something we're gonna discuss later on, but on the back of a period of time where the far right is juxtaposed or opposed to the democracy, where democracy is what's threatened and what is best, best equipped to fight racism. Now, this is obviously on a, mo a model of, um, sort of based on the post-war liberal sort of democratic order, but the way in which that is articulated often is we have to, we have to sort of um, represent the people. And oftentimes that means how, how the people are constructed, how the demos are constructed is based on sometimes reactionary ideas. Like we have to give, um, we have to give an inch or a foot or a mile to people who are concerned about immigration. Otherwise the far right who's concerned about immigration, but more explicitly illiberal or racist will get in. And that's a sort of a bit of scaremongering, um, but often justifies racist practices, xenophobic and racist practices. Um, I think the other way we, we see this is the way in which um, not just democratic parties and the media will represent sort of the democratic will of the people, but even the way in which um, both they and let's say academics um, who may be doing uh, polls on public opinion may represent people's views on immigration, you know, um, 
Islam and Muslims, or a whole host of other, um, what are often barely coded forms of racism um, as the will of the people. And in that sense, what you have is a democracy or a concept of democracy that seems to be conceptualized to represent the people who are concerned about other people who don't matter in those polls, don't matter in those politics, don't matter as a demographic. Um, and I think one of the issues with that is, is that that gets into sort of not a, a sort of an undemocratic notion of democracy, democrat, democ democrat, a notion of democracy that doesn't include all the people. Um, and that is, I think, linked to, and sort of to jump ahead, but the way in which we can, we insist that democracy must be anti-racist. That's really interesting because I guess, I mean, a lot of the discussion that seems to have happened in the last few years, uh, and I agree with you, some of this is in academia, not just in the press, is that the way that we deal with the far right as, the, as though it's this kind of cancerous tumour that hangs off a healthy body, the body politic is fine and there's this cancerous tumour. And the way we deal with it is almost to give it what it wants. Um, so there's this feeling which is the way that we defeat the far right is to listen to its concerns and presume that they you know, are much broader in society and then give them what they want or ape them in some ways. And one of the examples people often point to is Margaret Thatcher in 1979 when she gives her famous swamp speech and pulls the rug under from the National Front. And there's no doubt that it did work in there. So was, in terms of the National Front's vote collapsed because she'd said something similar. But are you arguing then that the problem with that sort of tactic is it normalizes it, it mainstreams it, we now, that politics has become much more extreme, even though she's got rid of the National Front in some way. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, what we're saying is that it, it very much opens the door to, to this politics being normalized. I mean, it's, it's, it's worth kind of taking a long view on this in a way and, you know, thinking about what happens, you know, after the, the Second World War, after uh, the civil rights era in the, in the US and, and, and what, we talk, what we talk about when we talk about illiberal forms of racism are, are the forms of racism that has been pushed to the, to the margins in a way, the forms of racism that have been pushed to the extreme, biological racism, the kind of things that, you know, seem to, to belong in a, in a bygone era, the kind of remnants that still happen. But it's happenstance, you know, it's like some kind of terror, lone wolf terrorist on their own, you know, go, like with mental health issues, usually doing something, something terrible, or it's someone uh, throwing a pig's head at a, uh, at a mosque, for example, something that even Nigel Farage, for example, will condemn, even Marine Le Pen would say this is unacceptable. And so this illiberal racism, in a way, uh, plays a part for us in, in this framework where it, it allows the liberal racist to say we're not like them. And that's exactly what kind of Margaret Thatcher did in a way, saying like, well, you know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not like the, the National Front, you know, but at the same time, we need to listen to what, to what the people want. And at the same time as, as Thatcher was doing that, the same thing was happening in France, for example, with, um, uh, with, with Laurent Fabius, who was prime minister under, under the quite radical left at the time, uh, François Mitterrand government, uh, socialist government uh, was saying, uh, as, as the Front National was pretty much inexistent in, in, in the polls, was saying, you know, well, Jean-Marie Le Pen is asking the right questions but giving the wrong answers and already giving it some air. Uh, and then, of course, you have Jacques Chirac who says something similar. And so then you move forward to the, to the kind of 2000s, and this, of course, increases more and more because you have uh, you have a kind of failure of, of mainstream politics to, to gain democratic support as the centre-left and centre-right parties converge. Um, and so you have the rise of the far-right on the one hand and the rise of other uh, alternatives. And here the far-right again serves as a deflection where you get someone like Nicolas Sarkozy in, in 2007 in France who will say, well, you know, in 2002 Jean-Marie Le Pen got to the second round of the presidential election. So clearly people want to see more of this kind of politics in, uh, you know, in France. That wasn't true, of course. What happened in 2002 is not so much that Jean-Marie Le Pen uh, gains a massive amount of votes. Uh, what happens is that the, the center-left, center-right, and center party totally collapse in terms of votes and abstention skyrockets, alternative parties rise up, uh, and Jean-Marie Le Pen stagnates. But because he stagnates while the others are collapsing, it means he gets to the second round. So complete misreading of the situation, which then, of course, you know, leads to the ban on the hijab in France in schools, uh, leads, you know, eventually to the ban of, a, of the burqa, more Islamophobia, more uh, anti-immigration uh, sentiment on the left, on the right, and everyone buys into that all the way to eventually, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton saying that the way to combat populism is, uh, is to be more anti-immigration, right? So, so yeah, it is, it is pervasive. And this is international. I mean, you were talking about France there. I guess we've seen similar things in the UK, British jobs for British workers, uh, similar things with Hillary. It's not just in France. Absolutely. The awful mug from Ed Miliband as well in 2015. 
<laughs> just come up again recently since he's been uh, <laughs> making the rounds. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's it, it, to go back to the sort of there are bond uh, like the idea of an liberal democratic re regime, um, count sort of contrasted with a liberal democratic one, um, as if that's supposed to displace all the sort of the sins of the liberal democratic one. Um, it, it, it works structurally the same with with the far right and the sort of the the just coded or you know xenophobic sort of liberal government or conservative government uh, who looks liberal in comparison. I mean, you have to you have to say, well, who's who's being spoken to? Who's supposed to be happy that the national front are gone if the policies on immigration um, or the policies on policing or whatnot? still disproportionately affect particular racialized communities or if um for example we have we don't have necessarily a powerful far, far right in this country but we still have a mainstream government um overseeing the hostile environment or sending out go home bans so who is exactly supposed to be relieved that you don't have the foot soldiers of racism and white supremacy but you do have the policymakers that's really, really interesting, actually. And it kind of comes on to something that you, you say in the book, um, and I kind of wanted you to explain it a bit further. I think it's quite early on in the book. You say, liberal democracies have become consumed by a fight for survival against they have themselves nurtured. Uh, could you kind of just tease out a little bit that there? Because it kind of rang loads of bells in my head, thinking about hope, not hate, work in lots of communities. And when I started in 2010 in Dagenham, it was like, uh, looked at the Labour Party and its failings in those communities in Dagenham and Burnley and Stoke and those sorts of places. Um, and then everyone was furiously angry about fighting against the far right. And I was like, you create, it was you are the people that created this problem in the first place. So I was wondering if you could kind of tease that out a little bit when you're talking about essentially in the book, you argue that liberal democracies um, have created a lot of these problems themselves. Well, in many ways, I mean, what we're trying to look at is, is again, you know, break this kind of, um, False, what we see as a false opposition between, between liberal democracy and the far right, between liberal democracy and racism, between liberal democracy and, and illiberalism necessarily. And what, what we're trying to show is that actually a lot of the kind of roots of the, of the, of the problem that we're facing at the moment are very much uh, part and parcel of liberal democracy. It doesn't mean that liberal democracy has to be racist and, or reactionary necessarily, but liberal democracy has certainly failed to live to its ideals. You know, we don't live in societies that are egalitarian. We don't live in societies that have eradicated uh, poverty or, or all these kind of problems that, that, you know, that had been promised in a way by the end of history. The fact that, you know, we would all be liberals and everything would be great. Uh, and this hasn't panned out. Um, and what we're trying to show by taking, again, the, the, the long view and looking at history as well, to some extent, and the history of liberalism, is to show that even though today we have completely bought into a hegemonic narrative where liberalism is the bulwark against the far right. It's the bulwark against the return of fascism. What we're trying to show is that actually, well, you know, this is a completely ahistorical view to take because liberalism has never been a bulwark against fascism. In fact, liberalism has quite often uh, worked hand in hand with a lot of kind of racist, fascistic ideas uh, in many ways. I mean, you know, you, I, I don't want to fall into kind of simplistic arguments and it's always tricky in a podcast when you have to talk about it quite quickly. But if you look at the 1930s, for example, you know, when, when the fascism was on the rise, whether it was in Italy or, or in Germany, uh, the center, uh, what was seen as the center back then, and of course the center is contingent, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in, in a second, but the center and the kind of liberals were, were not particularly opposed uh, to, uh, to the rise of fascism because that's not what they saw as the main threat. Um, and, and then what, what we argue is that, you know, throughout the, the period after the, the, the Second World War, which, which is the one we're most interested in, liberalism, again, hasn't always been on the right side of history. Liberalism hasn't always been a beacon of hope, of progress, uh, and, and of of non-reactionary politics in many ways. And in fact, a lot of the kind of politics that we see as progressive today and that we tend to naturally link to liberalism were in fact very much uh, against liberalism and were against liberal interests and the, the, the liberal elite that was kind of fighting against them. Think about you know, work rights, the welfare state, all these kind of things which were given up not because liberalism wanted to or the liberals wanted to, but, but because workers wanted them or because all other uh, alternative ideologies were pushing for these kind of things to happen. And so what we're trying to show, again, is not necessarily that liberalism is bad, that liberalism is racist, that liberalism is reactionary in and of itself, but we're trying to show that liberalism does not have to be progressive, does not have to be non-reactionary, does not have to be democratic in many ways. And in fact, it can very much be racist, sexist, and so on and so forth. And uh, 
I think, I think, I mean, what we're trying to show quite simply is that we need to be more critical uh, with liberal democracy. We can't keep thinking that liberal democracy is going to be enough to save us from, you know, a next fascist wave or the far right or whatever we want to call it. Uh, it, it will not protect it because it's never protected us against this unless we made it uh, stronger and, and we pushed for more rights and more equality and so on and so forth. I mean, it's really interesting to try and break down that kind of knee-jerk or, or assumption that liberalism is liberal democracy is going to be that bulwark and I think especially in places like Britain and certainly since Sweden traditionally and maybe Germany as well in the you know in the parts of the post-war period the presumption was very much that and as a result it wouldn't happen here and I think in the last decade some of those assumptions have really been challenged. Um, one of the things that's really interesting in the book is this you talk in quite some depth about liberal and illiberal racism and I was wondering if you could just tease out a little bit and explain how do you define those two things? Uh, like, how, what are they both and how do they work together? Well, it's, it was sort of, I think one of, our, one of our intentions was to sort of map not just racism in the history of racism. And we sort of, we touch on that and, and, and obviously it's sort of more complicated than we, we, we could fully, fully sort of engage with in the book. But one of the things we're interested in doing is mapping not just race, what racism is, but what people say about it, what they say it is and it isn't, and who they blame for it. And that's, we get into the sort of the, the white working class um, discourse. But I think largely what we're trying to conceptualize is the way in which liberal post-war and in the US for sort of post-civil rights, um, sort of discourses and narratives about racism have attempted to construct racism as either something in the past, something that has been defeated, often taking a form that is both extreme, is what we call traditional racism, biological, and, and practices such as sort of slavery, sort of Nazism, genocide, for example, and the way in which there is this idea that liberalism has defeated them, and that the only way they appear in the present is in what is, we call the illiberal form, which is the extremists. So it, it's part and part, the construction of an illiberal racism is also the construction of an extremism or the belief in an extremism that stands outside of the, at the mainstream and actually acts as a threat to it. Um, and it, it, the notion of liberal racism, and we sort of were developing this idea when we were talking about liberal Islamophobia, it's in some ways um, built upon sort of a neo-racism, a sort of cultural racist discourses, racism, forms of racism that attempt to um, deny their relationship to both to racism defined by a law as biology, as biological racism and practices such as slavery, the illiberal and the traditional forms. And it codes, it often codes racist, its racist discourses or it's, it's sort of its, its othering in terms of whether those people or those groups or their faith, for example, fit in with a liberal society or are a threat to it. And oftentimes this can be coded in terms of sort of issues about sort of liberal tropes like free speech or women's rights or LGBTQ rights. And we talk about that a lot about, I mean, you have for example like the English Defense League having an LGBT sort of unit, for example. And I think we're, sort of, we're familiar with these, um, these, these tactics. But I think the other thing is, is that a liberal racism is also built upon a post-race colorblind narrative and that we're inherited to sort of Edward Vanilla Silva and, and others um, for this sort of theory, but the way in which things are assumed to be equal. Everyone is colorblind now. And so if, if it, it basically permits a lot of othering and coded racism, and at the same time challenges those that raise racism as the issue. So if someone says, well, that's racist, that practice is so coded and embedded in liberal practices that to call it racist in a post-race and period is a challenge to the sort of the benevolence of or, or the sort of the, the positive progress of a liberal society. And so the question I've got then is how much of this do you think is purely tactical and how much of it is is real. I mean, you mentioned something like the English Defence League having a, an LGBT division. I mean, it wasn't particularly large, but it had it. 
But I think also if you look at more broadly the, the kind of modernization programs of much of the European far right over the last 20, 30 years, there has been that shift from a more explicit overt racism to this more liberal form of racism that, as you say, talks in terms of notions of free speech, identity, protection of women's rights and those sorts of things. How much of it do you think, obviously it's different in each case, but broadly speaking, how much of this is conceited and how much of this is real actually? And some of the people getting involved in this genuinely do believe they're standing up for women's rights against Islam. Where's the line, do you think? Well, I think, I think it depends. And as I say, it's very contextual. And, you know, a lot of the foot soldiers might truly believe that they're doing the right thing in a way or that they're doing, what, what they're doing is, is very much for LGBT rights and things like that. But what we try to argue again, and, and, and the point of the book really, is not so much to look at the people um, on the ground uh, as the foot soldiers, uh, but really to look at, at the elite, uh, the elite in the far right parties, but also the elite <coughs> in, in, the, in our liberal democracies as well, and the way they kind of create and shape public discourse. And if we look at the elite on the far right, uh, we, I think we would argue that in most cases, uh, this, is, this is very much strategic and this is very much done on purpose uh, and, and for good reasons, because what, what we argue and what others have argued as well is that there comes a point uh, in the kind of 70s and 80s where a lot of kind of far right movements um, start thinking about where they're at. And you have a kind of mimetic far-right movements, the neo-fascists, the neo-Nazis, who refuse to budge and they you know, stick to their kind of biological racism and things like that. But then you have other movements, uh, whether parties, political parties, or, or intellectuals, who decide to kind of think about it, right? And, and, and think about where they're at and think about the kind of the power relations at that stage. Um, and, and, and quite a big body of work comes out of, uh, of France at that stage and then spreads out uh, across Europe and, 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 and you know, uh, inter interconnects and, uh, and, and shapes kind of far-right thinking from the Nouvelle Droite in a way and uh, Alain de Benoit and, and, and others. And, and what they do is they, they borrow from Antonio Gramsci uh, quite, quite willingly, uh, and it's, it's quite interesting to see to see Gove uh, yesterday or the day before, you know, borrow from Gramsci as well. And I think you know there's a connection here because, of course, on Gove's bookshelf there's quite a few books from the Nouvelle Droite as well, quite a few books from the Nouvelle Droite. Anyway, that's a digression. <laughs> um, they so what they try to do, what people like Alain de Benoit try to do, is not they're not interested in political uh, in electoral politics. They're not interested in taking power. What they want is to reshape cultural power first. I mean, you know, to put it very simply, you know, the whole Gramscian idea of uh, uh, cultural power before political power. And so they start doing things like, um, like not of course denying their ideas. They are still very much, I mean, the, the Nouvelle Droite were pagans. Uh, they still believe in, in, in biological racism, but what they try to do is shift the discourse around this. And so someone like De Benoit, for example, starts talking about, uh, about different cultures and how all cultures are equal and all cultures are great. And uh, you know, he loves traveling and all these kind of things, but he, he loves cultures so much that he thinks we should protect them. And you know, protecting them would mean separating them and keeping them separate. So of course, that's a massive essentialization of cultures here, and you know, that's why we also we call it racism in many ways. And it goes as far as De Benoit going against uh, colonization, and he says, you know, I think colonization was always terrible, which of course is quite a shock because the far right has always been very much uh, for colonization because that's you know the superiority of the white race and all of these kind of things. And De Benoit says, no, colonization is terrible, has always been terrible, and it's also terrible today. And we shouldn't be colonized today the same way we shouldn't have colonized in the past. Of course, it's based on, uh, on a lot of kind of rubbish, really, and, you know, uh, completely wrong reading of history and, and the present context. Uh, but that works terribly well. And that allows them to come back from, from, you know, the margins in many ways by saying, hey, we're not racist. We think, you know, all cultures are great, uh, but so is ours. And, you know, you can see it. And that's, you know, I'm talking about things that were written 40, 50 years ago. Uh, and De Benoit has written dozens and dozens of books and has, has his colleagues, you know, he's been linked with, um, he's been in touch with, with Steve Bannon uh, and various others in the US, in the UK and so on. And, uh, and, and this is very much strategic because what they're trying to do is very much that cultural power, that cultural shift uh, in power before getting, getting electoral power. And then you see some interesting transitions with some of the Nouvelle Droite people, or not actually part of the Nouvelle Droite, but of, of uh, some think tanks who will join the Front National. And that's when the Front National reshapes itself, you know, from a neo-fascist party into a kind of modern, what we call reconstructed far right, which is, you know, trying to be less kind of uh, into biological racism, less Holocaust, Holocaust denialism, and more Islamophobia, for example, uh, including uh, homonationalism, femonationalism, uh, what, what Pouard called homonationalism and, and, and Paris femonationalism. I mean, it's really interesting because I mean, I, cause I, I always wondered, even when you look at the Nouvelle Droite and then you look at, you know, things like the identitarian movement that draws across the extraordinary, extremely heavy, especially on Gilliam Fay and but also de Benoit, 
and you, and you hear this, you know, ethno-pluralism is the sort of language they use, and they, they, they've jettisoned a huge amount of the language of the traditional far right, but some of the ideas don't seem, you know, particularly different, you know, uh, you know, repatriation might have disappeared from the language, but, you know, remigration has appeared, so there's these things, and I always wonder how much of it's real and how much of it is like kind of consciously an attempt to get into the mainstream. And so I guess that brings on you, there's a whole section in your book about mainstreaming, and this is a term that we will endlessly hear now in newspapers. It's one that we've talked about in various ways with varying successes and failures at Hope Not Hate, uh, this journey from the margins to the mainstream uh, and whether or not that's a useful way to understand what's happening. Uh, and I think some of the problems we've seen is when talking about mainstreaming is there is a presumption that it's just the far right has been picked up and it's all become acceptable and now it's they're just in the mainstream. And I think some of the debates we've been having over the last couple of months around some of the Black Lives Matter stuff, for example, show that there's a cordon sanitaire around certain types of things, but not others. And you mentioned Islamophobia and perhaps being like a route into the mainstream for some in a way that anti-Black racism might not be. But it's a very complex situation, mainstreaming. So what is it? What's happening? What has happened? <laughs> I, it's, I just want to go back for a second when you're talking about sort of the repatriation and the sort of ethno-pluralism, um, because unlike the French case in, the American, in America in the 1970s, you had this sort of um, slight concession to civil rights and, and progress, liberal progress, where the far right, instead of trying to adapt um, uh, what often some people call radicalized, they became more extreme. They sort of Nazified. They, um, they engaged in white separatism that often was about sort of the, the re-ethnicization of, of America in sort of Robert Miles' um, fascists um, language. And in a sense, that was the opposite of mainstreaming. That was a retreat into white victimhood. Um, and ironically, what you're starting to see now with the mainstreaming, and particularly with like identitarians and sort of white genocide thesis, is the same argument, but it, it has penetrated the mainstream. Um, and I think this this opens up the discussion. I think we both probably want to say something about mainstreaming, so I'll, I'll make it slightly short. It is contingent, and that's, I mean, both the, the concept of the mainstream is contingent, but it also operates at different ways in different places and times. So we saw a huge, huge boom in sort of work on sort of from the margins to the mainstream in the early 2000s. And a lot of political scientists and sort of political sociologists working on it. And in that case, and this is something I sort of see as slightly a, character, a, sort of a, a characteristic of um, far right studies is a concern about the far right making it to the mainstream. And in that sense, it's always about seeing, going back to what Aurelian said, sort of seeing liberal democracy as a bulwark, but not, not strong enough at certain points in time. Um, yet what there often was not was a concern about racism, a concern about who was actually affected by the mainstreaming of the far right, or the, was it, was it liberal democracy? Was it establishment parties? Or was it racialized people who were gonna be the targets of these policies and politics? And I think what's really important to note is, is that as much as you may have this concern, you know, in, in, in the US case that I was just talking about, the far right was, part, was, was very much linked to the mainstream in sort of the South particularly, and had actually lost that status and, and moved to the extreme and actually, the literal margins of the country in the Pacific Northwest to start sort of new nations, new white nations. And so part of what we're doing, and I'll sort of, I'll let Aurelian pick this up, but like part of what we're doing is we're talking about the mainstream. We're trying to understand what it means, how it's deployed, and how in sense it is not necessarily a safe space from racism and the far right. And it's not innocent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that <clears throat> that contingency is, is really important and something, again, that we forget too often. When we think about the center, we think about liberal democracy, we think about the mainstream, we think about something that is almost natural and that doesn't move. And what we argue is that the mainstream itself moves. It's not just, yeah, that, that kind of move from, yeah, the, the far right or the far left. And what we try to look at really, I mean, simply is already something that, that is not done often enough is separating uh, ideas and politics with parties. Nowadays, when we look at, at the far right, we tend to focus far too much on parties. And that's, I think that's what, you know, Aaron says when he says we don't look at racism that much. And if you look at political science, but when racism is completely absent, for example, no one ever talks about racism. And when they do, it's usually in a very poor manner. Uh, and instead, we talk about parties. And if a party, the far right party does well, then it's probably mainstreaming. 
uh, or, or if uh, anti-immigration sentiment rises in opinion polls, then it's probably mainstreaming. But we think it's a bit too simplistic here, I think. And we try to kind of separate these things and say, well, you know, you can have a successful party uh, and, and, and a mainstreaming, but you can also have a party falling out of favor, but the mainstreaming goes on. You know, think of, again, the Front National, for example, or the National Front here. Uh, over BNP, you know, the BNP disappears, but, you know, when you have UKIP taking it over, mainstreaming it further, then UKIP disappear, and, it, you know, racism and anti-immigration hasn't disappeared for necessarily. And so we try to look at it this way, and and what we try to look at as well, uh, and that's, and we've done it more since the book, actually, with uh, with Katie Brown in particular, is also look at a, at a third level, which which we talk about more at, in, in the last stage of the book, but we're trying to, in a more recent work, to link it to, um, to the process of mainstreaming, is we try to look at the way the concept of the people uh, comes into being, into, ma into mainstreaming ideas in many ways. Because you can't just mainstream ideas by having a, a microcosm at, at the elite. You need to justify why these ideas are becoming mainstream. And in our democracies, or in what kind of we call democracies these days, usually ideas that become mainstream, we are told at least, are ideas that the people favor anti-immigration, uh, or it could be anything. It could be something progressive, it could be something reactionary, it doesn't matter, but usually something is mainstream when, you know, well, that's what the people want. Uh, and so we look at the way the concept of the people is mediated in many ways, and how the concept of the people is not, again, as we tend to see far too often, particularly in political science, is, you know, there's public opinion, and what the people want is what, you know, politicians will give them in a way. And we tend to throw the responsibility for mainstreaming on the people. That's what the people want. We have to deliver that to them. And we look instead at the concept of the people as a mediated concept where the people has agency, of course, but the people is also talked about and the way the people is talked about by an elite to justify certain politics that actually serve that elite rather than the people themselves. I just want to add one thing, if you don't mind. It's just that what I find interesting when um, is the way in which we have racism couched in terms of what the people want. And then we have a dispute about a, a statue of a former slave trader. And we go, well, that's what the people used to want. And what seems to be is that, is that even if something is no longer mainstream, as long as it's racist. So the mainstream becomes this, this place where it's like, if they used to like it or they like it now, it's acceptable. And the, and the line between that is how sort of acceptability is, is, is represented, but also how rape racism is couched. And so is there essentially almost like a symbiotic relationship between what the people want and what the elites are, how the elites are framing what they want to push what the elites themselves want? Is that what the argument is here? So there's some, because for example, a lot of it you'll see, it comes down to polling and it will come down and the polls will say, you know, immigration has shot up the list of things that people care about. And so then the political parties turn around and say that people care about immigration. So we'll be tough on immigration. Um, is that, the mainstreaming of the idea that immigration is bad, you know, from the from the far right, or is it that the people want it? I mean, where, how does this work, or is it that is that too simplistic? Is it actually symbiotic? Well, it, it's the chicken or the egg. But actually, I think what the argument we're trying to make is is to some extent simple, simple, not simplistic, but simple. The argument we're trying to make is that nowadays, when we look at the mainstreaming of ideas and particularly the mainstreaming of far right ideas, we tend to look at at it in one way. We tend to look at either uh, electoral politics, so you know, if far right parties are on the rise, clearly that's the people want more far right politics or out opinion polling and certain issues and you know immigration is the biggest concern everywhere and so on and so forth. And we just find it quite surprising how uncritical this approach is uh, and how we we failed we failed to uh, to take into account a massive body of work. I mean we haven't invented anything here uh, we, but we failed to take into account a massive body of work which that has shown time and time again that knowledge is mediated, that our knowledge of our world is mediated. You know, beyond beyond uh, what, like that's what Benedict Anderson was talking about when he was talking about imagined communities, right? You know, beyond the primordial village where you know everyone else and you can kind of make a decision according to everyone else. Beyond that, you have to have that imagined community. You have to create kind of an understanding of people beyond your knowledge and places beyond your knowledge. And you know, when you think about 65 million British people, you will not meet all of them, and yet you're going to make decisions during uh, during elections about all of them. You know whether it's an EU referendum or a general election. And how do we make these decisions? How do we know that immigration is bad for the UK? How do we know that our borders are porous? How do we know that uh, migrants uh, are, are stealing our welfare money and so on and so forth? Well, we don't know it personally. We don't see it happening, most likely. And if we see it happening, we see it happening anecdotally. And yet we have to make decisions for 65 million people. So what we argue is, again, 
nothing that we've done ourselves. It's you know looking at what other people have done, uh, media theory, uh, media studies, and so on. Is how do people get their knowledge? And you know we get our knowledge of the world through various sources. You know it could be work, it could be family, it could be the church, it could be trade unions. But more and more, it's the media. And of course, nowadays you have what was called new media, that's not really new media anymore, and we're talking about kind of a dispersion of, of, of the news, but, but still, the legacy media, the big media, are still very much shaping the agenda. Think of the BBC in the UK, for example, which is where most people get the news, and even if they go and get their news on Facebook or Twitter, it's still very much influenced by these big media, the, the main broadsheets uh, or, or, uh, or the main public media. And these, these people have a role to play in shaping the agenda. Because, of course, we all know that journalists are not just objective actors who are just kind of regurgitating facts and every event that happens in a single day. Even if they were trying to, they couldn't, right? So they have to make a choice. They have to make a choice on what is the priority of the day. And, of course, add to these editorial lines, add to this ideological uh, backing of, of the owner of, of certain media, add to this the ideological stance of certain journalists. And all of this, of course, skews our media. And so we have to have mediated knowledge, but but we need to look at it critically. And, and one way we kind of look at it, and, and we found quite interesting to look at it that way, uh, to kind of show that we have to be far more careful with opinion polling that are being used time and time again to justify terrible policies and politics is looking at, at immigration, where we always told that people are really worried about immigration, and particularly in the UK, people are so worried about immigration. And well, as it happens, it very much depends how you ask these people about immigration. If you ask them about the UK, they will tell you they're quite worried about it. Not very worried, but quite worried. Surprisingly, they are apparently very worried about it just before the, uh, the EU referendum. Who would have thought? Well, it's at the time when actually all our media was talking a lot about immigration in a very negative way, as, as shown by various reports. However, when you ask them about what they think personally are the biggest issues for them, they don't think about immigration because they don't see uh, they don't see the immigrant as, as a threat around them. What they see as a threat is education, whether schools are going to be good enough for their children, whether they're going to get a pension, whether they're going to get a job, whether they're going to get you know, uh, enough money every month to pay the bills and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and so what, what we argue that's very problematic in the way we tend to see this kind of of kind of chicken, what, what we argue, like, you know, is the chicken or the egg? Is it the people demanding more far-right politics or is it the elite saying that people want more far-right politics? Is that we look at it just one way, completely forgetting the role of the elite in shaping these perceptions, in shaping the agenda in many ways, in telling people day in, day out that the biggest issue they have is immigration. And of course, when they say that, they hide and conceal a lot of stuff, which is, well, you know, maybe the biggest issue is, in fact, inequality. Maybe the biggest issue is the defending of our schools. Maybe the, the biggest issue is the rise of poverty in children and so on and so forth. Uh, so what we try to show is that, you know, it's too easy for the elite to share responsibility here and say, that's, that's just what the people want. You know, the people don't want better schools. They want less immigration. So that's where we'll put money into prisons and border patrols or a wall. So you can't, I mean, you've very succinctly kind of uh, covered my next question, which was in the book, you literally say resurgence of racist politics is not the result of popular demands. Uh, that's a quote. And so I, all I wrote was, so what is it? And, um, and I guess, so, I guess the media, I guess, is, is it the media and elites, I guess, is what you'd point to. Is there anything else you'd throw into that mix? Or is that enough? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I, well, it, we don't want to fall into kind of simplistic, um, like, and that's why we try to do in the book is, uh, is, is tease this out as well. You know, it's not just some evil elite uh, in cahoot that's kind of pushing this. But what we're trying to show is that there are deflections here in a way, and that, that the far right acts as a decoy uh, that, that, that prevents us from actually looking at, at systemic issues. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, we, we look at it even like touching on, on some kind of uh, psychoanalytic theory a little bit and, 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 and the concept of, uh, of the theft of enjoyment. And um, we, we use the concept of the theft of enjoyment in two ways. In, so the theft, like we, we argue that, for example, a far-right supporter will feel this theft of enjoyment with the migrants, for example, who are stealing their enjoyment of England, let's say, right? You know, the migrant is coming here, and if only the migrant wasn't here, I wouldn't be poor, I would have a better job, I would have more money, I would have a better welfare state, right? Of course. We know full well that if the migrant wasn't here, they wouldn't have a better job and so on and so forth. But, you know, that's a theft of enjoyment. But what we're arguing is that you get the same theft of enjoyment with, with the elite and the middle class and the upper class, which is if we didn't have a far right voter, if we didn't have a white working class, then we would have a perfectly bold democracy. And of course, that's not true, you know, uh, because as, as, as many people have shown, uh, you know, Brexit is not a working class 
problem. It wasn't a working class vote. Trump is not a working class vote either. The Front National is not a working class vote. And, and we're not saying that the working class doesn't vote for these people, but the working class mostly doesn't vote. So it's not enough for the working class to vote to actually push Brexit through, to push Trump to the, to the presidency, or, or to push uh, Marine Le Pen to the second round. Uh, you know, there's a responsibility that's, that's far more shared in terms of votes, but also in terms of message, in terms of what's talked about, what's given to people to think about as well. So I wanted to touch on that, this question of the working class, because I think it's really, really interesting the way you, you talk about this in the book, and, and partly because so much this debate is just made really binary, it seems. It's either culture versus economics, right? It's either all about economics, and so you only have to look at the working class and, you know, go just head to Pittsburgh, go to Dagenham and, and go to the, you know, the ring around France, and then that's understandable, it's economics. Or it's nothing to do with money. It's nothing to do with economics. You know, uh, if you're reading Kaufman and Goodman and these people, it's nothing to do with economics. It's about culture. It's about fear of immigration. And I thought it was really interesting how you took a slightly more nuanced and interesting position on this, talking about how the working class is not negating the role of economics, but looking at how the working class is not as simple as far right. The rise of the far right is a working class backlash. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe tease out a little bit about your position on this and what you say in the book about the role of the working class. It's interesting that that uh, certain sort of academics are saying it's not economics, it's culture, because there was a cultural turn they experienced too, whereas it had previously been the left behind. Um, and the left behind was a, it, it sort of dispersed whether the, the factors were economic or were cultural or were inflated. Um, but I, I think one of the one of the issues we have is is the way in which, and to go back to your previous question, it's not that it's not the working class, it's the media and the politicians. The media and the politicians are the ones who keep on saying it's the working class. I think to, to go back and say that's what we're kind of analyzing. Um, but also the idea of the left behind um, or the white working class does a number of things. One, it actually renders what is effectively whiteness as victim. It's a sort of a pseudo sociology of disenfranchisement that only applies to white people. Now, they can make claims that it's a working class revolt, but when you, look at the, when you look at the description of their fears and perceptions, they're always highly racialized, even when the working class is itself not identified as white. So there's a, there's this, there's a pseudo sociology effectively of, of disenfranchisement and the desire for representation. It allows for whiteness to be rendered sort of victim or other, um, but what it often does is it replaces a classism um, it sort of with um, where it, 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 it places all these, and I think Aurelian covered this quite well, with the way in which it places racism and all the negatives of liberal democracy onto the working class. Um, the white working class also then fails to look at the diversity or acknowledge the diversity of the working class. So in, in effect, who is affected by the same conditions that create a left behind? Which would ideally be austerity, you know, um, a class system, you know, um, sort of labor rights, and a whole host of things, um, which would absolutely affect sort of black and Asian and immigrant working class people. But they're not counted because they if, if they don't have class they have race effectively mm -hmm. um and what ends up happening is i think um so we have you know we have all this going on in brexit on on the back of however it's like seven years of austerity seven eight years of austerity and which has served to cut and cut and cut away and degrade the sort of the power of the most socioeconomically disenfranchised and then the prize you get if you're white is to be told that someone else did it. And then you end up, you end up being sort of pulled into voting for and supporting a reactionary politics that probably support austerity in the same, at this, in, the, in the first place, would probably perpetuate it, but it's blamed on someone else. And this is seen as a way of sort of like achieving some sort of socioeconomic and cultural progress and I think key to the cultural aspect is the whiteness and the nativism effectively because I think that's what it's the core of it now when you see the politics that are supposedly the responsibility of the white working class being led being voted for and benefiting 
the white middle class and elite, you have to really question the class politics of it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. And I guess it's, this brings me on to my final question. You've been very generous with your, your time, so I really appreciate it. Um, towards the end of the book, you kind of tie a lot of these threads up. And one of the things that I think is almost like a recurring theme in this is, is almost like a warning to the reader to not overly focus on the far right. And um, someone who works at an anti-fascist organization as a researcher of the far right, um, it was a really, really useful kind of reminder because it was almost like lift up your head a little bit and look at the mainstream, look at the structures of society. And it was funny, I was reading this book at the same time as a lot of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations in, uh, around the world. Again, talking about systemic issues. Um, and I'd spent 10 years with my head down uh, in looking at the far right. And so you say literally stop hyping the far right. There is a section in the book and, and you touch on the media, the politicians and academia. And um, so I thought maybe you could just, if you, one of your, both of you could just finish there and tell us a little bit about why you think it's important that, you know, we, most of our listeners will be anti-fascists. They, you know, their thing that they will be preoccupied is, is the far right. Um, why is it important that you think that we don't hype it too much and that we kind of all lift our heads up a little bit? Well, I mean, I think, you know, just, just to be clear as well, because it's something that sometimes uh, is misunderstood less so with a book now, but uh, that it's out. But I mean, we, we're both clearly anti-racist and anti-fascist, and we're both against the far right through and through. And we both think the far right is a threat, and it, but it needs to be combated. So, you know, I mean, what, what Hope Not Hate has done, what mo most anti-fascist, anti, you know, anti-racists are doing is absolutely essential to do that on the ground and to do that against the far right precisely. So we're not about letting the far right off the hook. But we, we're more about taking kind of a, a, a broader view here where, where the far right, of course, is a massive danger and is certainly, you know, a very clear physical danger. But what we're trying to argue as well is that the far right is used by other forms of, oppre of oppression, including racism, uh, to kind of justify these other forms of oppression, as in like, look, the real enemy is, is the neo-Nazi, the real enemy is the neo-fascist. And they are the enemy, no doubt, but they're not the only enemy. You know, because actually the mainstream politics we have, the systemic oppression we have is still there. Uh, and in a way, what we're trying to say is like, well, we, we need to keep fighting on the ground, the far right. But if we really want change, this is, this is what is urgent, fighting the far right on the ground. But what is, I mean, to be honest, just as urgent is to, is to fight this kind of systemic uh, oppressive st structures that we have as well, that kind of perpetuate racism, that feed off uh, the, 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 what, what the far right is pushing, that kind of keep um, keep it alive to some extent by putting it on, on, on primetime TV, by, uh, by giving it a lot of air in the media, uh, by giving it a lot of air in, in, um, in academia as well, because I think the, this is something we've been talking about for quite a while. And I've, interestingly enough, I think it's, it's shifted. And tell me, tell me if you disagree, actually, Aaron. I don't think we've, we've necessarily talked about, about it. Uh, but uh, three, four years ago, when we started talking about these, these issues, people were telling us, oh, but are you saying we... You're not worried about the far right. Are you saying we shouldn't talk about the far right? No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is we should take a broader view. And I think this has changed slightly now that we've entered a new moment where actually illiberal reactionary politics are coming in very much in the mainstream. Now you have Trump, and Trump really, the borders between the liberal and the illiberal are getting fuzzier and fuzzier. You have, of course, Brexit, which has allowed, allowed a lot of kind of pretty liberal racism to come into the mainstream. You had the hostile environment. Uh, you had uh, Islamophobia in France on the rise, you have Hungary, you have Poland, uh, you have all these things that I think are, are getting people to wake up. And of course, the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is, you know, uh, as researched again recently, and that's showing that, you know, the problem is not, Trump, is not just Trump, the problem is not just the Ku Klux Klan, the problem is not just the National Front, you keep the Brexit party, the problem is much deeper than that. Uh, and I think that's what we can't lose sight of, because and that's why it's, that's what is easy to, cite, to lose sight of as well, because the far right sells. And we see the far right and the extreme right a lot more in the media than we see systemic oppression. Uh, and, and, and what we're trying to argue is that uh, we, need, we need to make sure we take a broader view against all forms of oppression, uh, whether it's racism, sexism, transphobia, uh, and, and all these kind of things, which, which we argue uh, will, if we don't tackle them, all these forms of oppression, we will be in a reactionary democracy because we will leave some people out. Uh, no, I, I just sorry if I disagree. No, I agree, and I, I we've I have noticed the exact. I have I have definitely noticed that. Um, yep. Yeah. As as when we when we did the work on sort of liberal and illiberal uh, racism, we did talk a lot about the blurring, um, and we give some examples. I think we'd have a lot more examples now, a lot more. And I think I think recent protests and 
the way the media and politicians responded to them around the statues really, really did highlight the fact that the the so like the far right on the ground identified euphemistically as counter protesters. Um, the politicians in the offices and the media and the sort of commentariat um, were all defending the same things. And I think this really, really did uh, sort of push into like strong relief or um, in a way that these are, there is a, there is a, a movement, there is traffic um, across that. Um, in terms of the far right, I mean, I would agree um, that they are the enemy. They do need attention. I guess I would just ask, um, and I do appreciate the work of sort of anti-fascists on the ground. I guess what I would what I would ask is, what is the concern that people have about the far right? Because if it's their racism, do you also have to care when it's in the structures, institutions, and mainstream? And if you're concerned about the mainstreaming of the far right, what happens? Or how do you respond when the mainstream rejects it? Are you, do you are you do you go home, or is there still something to fight? And that's why I'm always sort of conscious of the sort of the rises and declines of the far right, because oftentimes that's only part of the story. And I think I think that's why we identify as anti-fascists and anti-racists. I think that's a really really great place to to finish actually, and I think. Um the book is it feels very much like the perfect timing sometimes those books come out and, and as that reminder and kind of teaching anti-fascists to be anti-racist and anti-racist to be anti-fascist is obviously like a long long-standing slogan but it doesn't often have you know in reality sometimes it doesn't manifest itself and i think the last month or so those conversations have really started again and that's really exciting and, and i think that this book is part of that conversation and it's a really useful reminder so i would thoroughly recommend to all our readers so listeners even, Reactionary Democracy, How Racism and the Populist Far Right Became Mainstream. Uh, it's on Verso. Go out and get a copy. You can get it straight from the Verso website. Um, and thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on and giving us the time. Um, uh, and we thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. So thank you very much for coming on the Hope Not Hate podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you again for listening to the Hope Not Hate podcast. If you haven't already, hit subscribe to get every episode direct to your device. If you enjoy listening to the Hope Not Hate podcast, please leave a rating or review wherever you are listening from. Doing that really helps more people discover our channel. Thank you as well to members of Hope Not Hate. Your support makes our work, including this podcast, possible. If you wish to join, head to hopenothate.org.uk and click the big red Become a Member button.